The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and have a seat. Father, as we open up your word this morning, may it be more desired to us than gold, even much fine gold. And Lord, may your word be sweeter to us than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. By your, your word, may we be warned and may we see the great reward that is ours in Jesus. And so, Father, let, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hey, I feel compelled to just to share this because this is a family-style service. If you have kids with you today um, and they're not, you're not accustomed to having them with you in the gathering, just know that we're really excited to have both you and your kids with us in the gathering today. And, um, and we know that part of that, uh, one, of the, one of the noises that comes along with family uh, is the noise of kids, and, and that's a noise that we really love. And so if, if, you, if you have to, feel free to take them out in the narthex or, or in, into the, uh, the Geneva house, but we're just we're excited to worship together today. Um, well, when I was in college, I worked as a server in a couple of, of different Restaurants. Now, this is before the days of like all of the local kind of one-off kind of bespoke restaurants, and so there, there were a couple of couple of chain restaurants. And and every now now and again, maybe a couple of times a year, someone from the corporate office planned a visit to our store, to our restaurant, and I did not like those weeks. Because with those weeks 
came work. And, and, and not just like a normal load of work, but like a lot of work, a lot more work than usual. Why? Well, we had to get ready. We had to get ready. My boss's boss was going to be in town, and our entire restaurant was going to be under his microscope to, to see if our operation, our facilities, and everything were up to snuff, so to speak. And so, in preparation for this person's visit, we cleaned. And then we cleaned some more. We brushed up on procedure and make sure that we made sure that we were following it appropriately. Servers, as they approached uh, patrons at, at tables, there were specific things you were supposed to say, uh, featured meals you were supposed to offer. And so we had to, to make sure all of those things were happening. We had to prepare. We had to get ready because corporate was coming. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, we also uh, see um, a, a call to get ready, to prepare. Our passage today is, is all about preparation. No, corporate's not coming to town. Um, but uh, over the past four weeks or so, uh, Matthew, we've seen, has been telling us about the arrival of this long-anticipated king. He's been telling us about the arrival of the promised Messiah. And it naturally follows that in our passage today, John the Baptist preaches a message of repentance, salvation, and judgment as he warns about the coming of the king's kingdom. We've been hearing about the coming of a king. Today, we hear about the coming of, we've been hearing about the coming of a king. Today, we hear about the coming of a kingdom. Now, we'll get to John the Baptist here in a moment, but first, it's, it's helpful for us to remember that all of this is unfolding after 400 years of silence for God's people. 400 years had passed with no prophetic word from the Lord, no prophetic activity. And if we turn to the final prophet in our Old Testament, Malachi, it's just a few pages to the left, we'll see that the final words of Malachi leave us with a bit of a cliffhanger. This is what he says. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, not only were God's people anticipating the coming of a promised Messiah, but they were anticipating the return of the prophet Elijah. And these two were very much related. They, they were very much connected to one another. And it's in the context of, of this kind of collective anticipation that we're introduced to John the Baptist then in Matthew chapter 3, where we read in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John the Baptist was uh, the cousin of Jesus. We, we read about him in Luke chapter 1. But more than that, as we'll see in our passage here today, John the Baptist was a prophet. And he wasn't just any prophet, he was a very particular prophet. 
We know this from our passage because of the clues given to us, uh, specifically in in verse 4, which says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey, a very particular kind of prophet. He He was peculiar. He spent time in the wilderness eating the food of the poor, locusts drizzled with some some wild honey, separated from the comforts of the culture around him. This this wasn't uncommon for Old Testament prophets. And so it's it's signaling to us something about John the Baptist. But there's also this. We're also told a bit about how John the Baptist was dressed. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. Now, this is significant for at least one reason, because there was another man in the Bible who dressed in very much the same way. And in 2 Kings, we see that it was none other than, guess who? Elijah, the prophet. Elijah, the prophet. And so then, we have the prophet John the Baptist, this Elijah-like figure who has kind of come onto the scene. We've seen the, the arrival of the promised king, and now we have the arrival of the promised prophet who has come to make way and to prepare the way for the king, to, to announce the coming of his kingdom. And his, his message, and really the main idea of our passage this morning, is this. Repent and trust in King Jesus. His kingdom is coming. Repent and trust in King Jesus. His kingdom is coming. And we're going to see that repentance is a main theme in our passage. So we're going to make three observations about repentance from our passage today. First of all, we're going to take a look at uh, just John's message of repentance. What is the content of this message? Second of all, we're going to look at the fruit of repentance. And then lastly, the spirit of repentance. And so let's, let's dive in first then, the first six verses and the message of repentance. Now, ultimately, John's message, at least his initial message, was a relatively short one. It was to the point. You're going to see in our passage here today that John is a rather blunt preacher, Right? He, he's not the kind of, of a preacher that minces words. And in his message, we're going to see both a what and a why. Both a what and a why. First, the what. Well, John begins his prophetic preaching ministry with the same word that Jesus will begin his preaching ministry with in the next chapter, John, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. They they both begin their, their preaching ministries in the same way with the very same word, and that word is repent. Repent. Now, very simply put, repentance is is often described as a, a turning from sin. And I think that's 
a fair summary. I think that's a fair description of what repentance is, but a scholar and commentator D.A. Carson gives us some additional insight into this word repent and the meaning of it. He says what is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief. And so you could, you could describe it in, in either one of those ways, a, a, a changing of one's mind or, or maybe a, a, a sense of grief over one's sin. He says it's not merely one or the other, but rather a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance in in accordance with verse 8. So then is, is repentance a turning from sin? Is it a a changing of one's mind with respect to sin? Is it to be sorry for sin? I think the answer is yes. All of the above. It's a changing of mind. It's It's a change in affection. It's a a change in action. It involves godly sorrow and grief over sin. It's a a, a shifting of one's entire self and heart. It's a a turning of oneself in a holistic sense, a, a turning of the person away from sin and turning joyfully to God. This is the what of John's message. This is his exhortation to all who have ears, to all who will listen. He calls them to repent. Reorient your lives around the why, which is next. You see, the what makes makes a lot more sense in light of the why. He says the second part of verse 2, repent for or because... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why should one repent? Why the radical shift and reorienting of one's life? Well, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, in the first two chapters of Matthew, we saw the arrival of a king. Now, in chapter 3, this prophet, John the Baptist, he tells us that a kingdom is at hand. The kingdom, the king's kingdom. This should pique our interest as we're reading the opening chapters of Matthew. These two must be connected. And this phrase, uh, the kingdom of heaven, it's going to become a familiar one for us as we work our way through Matthew. We're going to see it come up over and over and over again. Matthew uses it some 32 times in his gospel account. Another commentator, Leon Morris, explains the kingdom in this way. He says, It is also accepted that we should understand kingdom as meaning rule rather than realm. Rule rather than realm. That is to say, the expression is dynamic. Then he clarifies, it points us to God as doing something, as actively ruling rather than to an area or a group of people over whom he is sovereign. You see, the the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven being at hand has something to do with 
what God is doing. And then he, he summarizes in this way, the kingdom is something that happens rather than something that exists. So what John is not saying is that the kingdom of heaven is about to exist. Here's this new thing that we need to deal with, the kingdom of heaven. He is saying something is happening with respect to the kingdom, to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the the active reign and rule of God is close. You might even say it's, it's closer than ever before. It's It's near. It's imminent. The, the kingdom is fast approaching on the one hand in a future sense. And on the other hand, in the present sense, it's already here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, what, what changed? What changed over the, the course of 400 years that would cause John to preach this message? Well, again, chapter one, chapters 1 and 2 make this very clear. The king is here. The king has arrived. The king is on the scene, and his earthly ministry is about to begin. Matthew adds this in verse 3, speaking about John the Baptist. He writes, for this is he, he meaning John the Baptist, this is he who was spoken about or spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make make his paths Straight. Now, Matthew uses a quote from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And the context of this verse here is actually the Lord speaking words of comfort to his people who are in Babylonian exile. They're in captivity. And he's speaking words of comfort and, and, and words of encouragement to his people, words of assur- assurance promising them a return from exile. He is forecasting and promising an ingathering of his people from captivity. Let's look at, let's look at this, this verse in context, starting in, in verse 1 of, of Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord, from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. He's, the Lord is, is speaking about forgiveness. And then a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. This is from our call to worship. 
The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, the, what the prophet Isaiah is not talking about is the radical altering of and leveling of the physical terrain of the earth. The context here has to do with sin. It has to do with the forgiveness of sin. It has to do with the, the promised and gracious and merciful pro, uh, work of their God. This is a metaphor here then, verses three and on, for the repentance of God's people. It's not talking about the terrain of the earth. Rather, it's talking about the terrain of the lives and the hearts of the people of God. The Lord is, is bringing an end to their captivity, to, to gather them together as his people from exile. And so the prophet says, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight his path. Now, one interesting and, and important detail here, uh, in quoting this verse, Matthew was not only equating John the Baptist with the, the one crying in the wilderness, but you'll, uh, you'll notice in verse 3, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. When Matthew quotes this verse here in the context of our passage today. He's not just saying, hey, John the Baptist is, is the one whose voice is crying in the wilderness, but he's also identifying Jesus with the Lord. And in the book of Isaiah, the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Jesus isn't just a deputy king sent by God. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is God. And herein lies some important context that gives us the why for the what. Why? Why repent? Well, King Jesus is here. God in flesh and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His reign and rule is close. It's near. It's imminent. The kingdom is fast approaching. Therefore, turn from your sin, O people. Turn from your false gods and your false kings, O people, and give your devotion and fidelity to him. Repent and prepare the way for King Jesus, your Lord. Look, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I, I want to say that this, this, this message from John the Baptist is, is clearly and plainly a message that you need to hear. Because Jesus has come in, in his first coming, and as we're going to see later on in our passage, he is coming back, and when he comes back, he's bringing judgment. 
And so preparing for the coming kingdom isn't just something that John the Baptist and his contemporaries needed to do, but this is something that we also need to do. And so if if you've not repented, if you've not reoriented your heart and your life around his kingdom and his reign, his rule, his authority, his deity, then I want to invite you to do that today. I want to implore you to do that today. The kingdom is at hand. And Christian, rest assured, this message is also for us. You see, unlike me serving tables at Applebee's, the call of the Christian isn't to repent once a year when corporate comes to town. This isn't a one and done kind of thing. Like when I was five, I prayed the prayer, I repented. Or when I was in college, I prayed the prayer, I repented. Never again to repent. Repent, get saved, never repent again. This, this, is, not, this is not the rhythm of the Christian. Re- repentance is an all-of-life thing. It's a way of living, you might say, an, an ongoing daily rhythm. Remember, we're talking about reorienting our lives, a, a reorientation of, of the whole person around the reign, rule, and authority of Jesus. And, and look, Christian, if, if you're honest with yourself, you're, you're prone to wander. You're prone to stray. And so am I. And so when, when we do, we repent. We course correct. Once again, bringing ourselves in our lives, in our hearts, in line with, in submission to the authority of our blessed Savior. And so let let me ask, do you have regular rhythms of confession and repentance in your life before the Lord? This is why this is is a part of our our weekly liturgy. This is why we we have a a moment of confession each and every Sunday as we gather. But it's not even just a once a Sunday thing. What does it look like for you on a a daily basis even to go before the Lord, to acknowledge the the ways in which you, you have strayed you failed to orient your life around his, his kingship, his lordship. Trusting anew in his mercy and his grace that is fresh, new, and available to you that day. Well, we're told that people were going to John from all over the place. John had a, a, a booming ministry. People were going to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and all around the region. They were confessing their sins, being baptized, immersed in the Jordan River as a sign of their repentance. And, and with the crowds came the religious leaders and authorities of the day. That brings us to the fruit of repentance. Our second point. Matthew writes, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, notice that preposition coming to his baptism, not for his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, he were, these were two groups that, that were interestingly very much at odds with one another. They, they didn't like each other. We read that they they come to John's baptism, probably not to participate, 
but to like scope things out, to gather some information, some intel, to see what was going on. And, and when John sees them, he doesn't mince words. He calls them a brood of vipers, serpents with a deadly, with a deadly bite, known for killing and devouring their own, by the way. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? As if to say, who told you, who told you this was happening? You didn't get an invitation from me? You see, the, broad, the, the problem that John points out with respect to these religious leaders is this, that they didn't bear fruit that was evidence of the true godly repentance that John is calling his followers to. Were these religious leaders preparing the way for Jesus, the king? Were they turning away from their sin, instead turning to God trusting in his mercy and his grace, orienting their lives around his reign and rule? Are their lives and their hearts prepared to trust in the coming king, to delight in him, to submit to his divine authority? Remember, these are the same leaders that Herod gathered together in chapter two and said, hey, where is it that this king is being born? And you remember they told him in Bethlehem and the wise men were sent to find Jesus. But, but these leaders couldn't be bothered to go find him and, and behold him themselves. Their you see, the kingdom is at hand. Have these men made their path straight for the king? G, uh, John's answer is an emphatic no. No. No, they haven't. They are producing bad fruit with their lives. And bad fruit is always the result of a bad root, which the Baptist exposes. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, though they gave off the appearance, the appearance of godliness and devotion on the outside, these were, these were men who, who apparently kind of had their stuff together. They were in the pews every morning for church, every Sunday morning for church. They never missed a gospel community. They hit their quiet times every day. You see, though they gave off the appearance of godliness and devotion, they weren't trusting in the Lord at all. Rather, they were trusting in their own race and lineage. You see, in their eyes, John's message didn't apply to them. To repent wasn't something that they needed to do. To reorient their lives wasn't something that they needed to do. They're saying, in a sense, that they're right with God and are rightful recipients of God's promises because they're special and their lineage is special because they're, they're physical descendants of their father, Abraham. 
And they failed to realize that Abraham and the Jews were chosen to be God's people, not because they were special or worthy of being chosen, but rather because God chose them as an act of his undeserved love and grace. You see, in, in claiming the name of their father, Abraham, they, they, they show that they don't really know their father, Abraham, at all. And, and, and this has left them not thankful, not trusting in the Lord and walking by faith, but it's left them entitled. It's left them prideful, trusting instead in themselves. Brothers and sisters, Entitlement is not consistent with the kingdom. And entitlement is the enemy of repentance. It's the enemy of repentance. You see, these religious leaders think they have some negotiating power in the kingdom because of who they are and where they've come from. As if the Lord somehow needs them. But John knows they've, they've got absolutely no leverage at all. Neither the king nor the kingdom need these self-righteous Pharisees or Sadducees. And as John points out, look, God can raise up children for Abraham from these very stones on the ground in the wilderness. How can you say that he needs you? And, And in fact, We know, if if we've read the rest of the Scriptures, we know that he will raise up children for Abraham from the Gentiles, non-Jews, who have no special lineage to trace back to Abraham at all. Based on the fruit and orientation of their lives, it's apparent that these leaders are heading not for salvation, but for destruction. And so John warns them. Even now the axe is is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Trees that fail to produce good fruit, those who fail to trust in the king, those who fail to turn from their sin and their self-righteousness and their trust in false gods and kings, those who fail to submit to King Jesus' reign and orient their lives around his rule, ultimately will be cut down. We're not talking about a tree trimming here. We're talking about acts to root. Timber thrown into the eternal fire of judgment. And so this is a good time for all of us, Christian or not. Let's take a moment, a sober moment, and and ask ourselves, am I bearing good fruit in keeping with repentance? Are you bearing good fruit in keeping in repentance and keeping with repentance or like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, might you be trusting in and substituting something else for repentance and faith in Jesus? Are you trusting in something other than Jesus for your salvation? 
For the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was their Jewish lineage. It was their race. For you, it might be your own lineage. Maybe you were born in a Christian home. You've always gone to church. You've always done all of the things that good Christians typically do. And so therefore, you've made the assumption that based upon those things, much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, look, look I'm good. Maybe, tr- maybe you're trusting in your own works. In your own ability to, to heap up good works and deeds of righteousness. Maybe self-flagellation in an effort to to make up or pay for your own sin. And so if you could just beat yourself up enough, if you can just be sorry enough, if you can just punish yourself enough, then you don't have to come before the king in repentance and trust in him. It could be your success. Maybe you're comparing yourself with someone else. Well, She definitely needs to repent. He definitely needs to repent. I'm not even in the same zip code. I'm good. Maybe you're trusting in your the the quality of your repentance instead of trusting in Jesus Himself. Remember, your, your your repentance doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. That's the whole point of repentance. Not to orient your lives around the act of repentance, but rather to orient your life life around Jesus, Lord and Savior. And on and on and on we could go. Well, whether you repent and trust in Jesus or not, John wraps up our passage today by making it known that there are consequences. That brings us to the spirit of repentance. First of all, we see the result of or the consequences of of repentance. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John isn't suffering from low self-esteem here. John has has an accurate understanding of who he is and and the one who is to come. He understands his role. That's why later we're going to see him utter the phrase, he must increase, I must decrease. He is not the point. The king is the point. And despite the fact that his ministry is thriving, it's growing gangbusters. People are coming from all over the place to hear his message and to respond to it. John has a proper understanding of the greatness of the one who is to come and his own standing before him. He knows that the one who is coming is greater and mightier than he is. And he baptizes with a better baptism. You see, John's baptism, much like the baptism that that we um, participate in here with, with the, the, the tank, the metal tank. It's an external baptism. We baptize like John baptized with, with water, immersion in water. 
Jesus' baptism, on the other hand, it, it was not an external baptism, but it was an internal baptism. And it worked from the inside out. He, he offered the Holy Spirit and with fire. And now we, we could see these two, the Holy Spirit and fire, in verse 11 as opposites, and some do. Some see that the Holy Spirit as what is offered to, to believers, and uh, fire uh, representing the judgment that is coming for, for unbelievers. Others see the fire as connected to the, uh, the Holy Spirit, having something to do with purification. I would just say, I'm not sure we have to make a choice today. I think it very well mean, very well may be, based on our context here, of both and. These two are connected, the Holy Spirit and fire. Yes, fire destroys and consumes as in judgment, but fire also refines and purifies. And this brings to mind the Lord's promise to his people in Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. Very similar to Isaiah chapter 40 and what the Lord is, is doing there. And bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you should be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Talking about forgiveness for sin and idolatry. For infidelity. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so not only is the Lord promising forgiveness here, but the Lord is also promising the coming of and the indwelling presence of his spirit in the life in the lives of his people. But it goes a step further than that. Not only will the Lord give his people his, his spirit, but what will his spirit do? He will cause his people to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. In other words, the Holy Spirit will, will, will work the work of purification in their lives. And if you're a Christian, you should see evidence of this in your life. And I, I'm guessing that you have. Don't just think in terms of the last day. Think in terms of the last month, the last year, the last decade. Have you seen yourself grow and mature? Have you seen yourself become more and more and more like Jesus? I'm guessing that you have. And so it's, it's the Holy Spirit that gives spiritual life. It's, it's a Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin. It's a Holy Spirit who empowers obedience and love and good works. It's the Holy Spirit that changes and transforms us from the inside out. To put it in Isaiah 40 terms, the Spirit works in you to prepare the way for the Lord and to make straight His paths in your life. Not as you wait for Jesus' first coming and the inauguration of His kingdom, but as you await His second coming and the consummation of His kingdom. 
course, that brings us to the final verse and the consequences for a failure to repent. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The the picture here is a harvest time picture, and we have grain on the threshing floor, and the farmer takes the winnowing fork. We have to separate the grain from the chaff, the grain from the husks, and so he takes the winnowing fork, and he throws the grain and the husks up in the air. The grain falls immediately to the ground because it's heavier, and the chaff is blown by the wind off in the distance away from the grain. Now, at the end of this process, the threshing floor is cleared. The grain is gathered and stored, and the chaff is gathered and burned. And John, John is telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's warning us as well. This is what Jesus is coming to do. He came to live, die, and rise again. To pay for the sins of those who would trust in him. He, and he's coming back. He ascended into heaven and and one day, I pray soon, he's coming back and when he comes back, he's coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. And with the winnowing fork, he's going to make a distinction. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and those who have refused to repent and trust in him will endure the unquenchable fire of eternal judgment. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, not a very feel-good message for New Year's Eve. True. That's true. My job this morning as a pastor, and frankly, our, our job as Christians isn't to tickle your ears and make you, to, make you feel good about yourself today. My job is to tell you the truth. And the truth is Jesus is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. The truth is, friend, that the kingdom of God is at hand. King Jesus has come. The kingdom is a very present reality, but it's also a future reality. Jesus is coming back to judge both the living and the dead. As the kingdom draws near, so too does his judgment. Your only option is this. Repent. Repent. Trust in Jesus as Lord. Trust in Jesus as God. Trust in Jesus as Savior. Trust in Jesus as King. Repent and trust in King Jesus. Because his kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Father. Lord, while while this passage here today doesn't leave us with the the flutter and pitter-patter of of butterflies in our tummy today, Lord, I I get the sense that that the warning here that comes from your servant and prophet John the Baptist is, is your kindness to your people. 
It's, it's your kindness to us. And it's your kindness to those who wouldn't call themselves your people, to those who aren't walking in submission to your reign and your rule, those who don't belong to you by faith. It's, it's your kindness to us all. Reminding us, Lord, that that your kingdom is at hand. Your kingdom is near. Your kingdom is here and it's coming. The king is here and he's coming. And Lord, it's your kindness to us to warn us that he comes with the winnowing fork to separate wheat from chaff. And Lord, it's my prayer that everyone here today would be gathered up together with the grain, that we would all be gathered up together as your people, repenting, your, your, your repentant people who trust in Jesus as Savior, who orient our lives around Jesus and, and his authoritative reign and rule. Lord, may you do that work in us. Make us a people who repent. Make us a people whose, whose lives Our, our lives of repentance and faith in him. We pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.